Hear ye! Hear ye! Hear ye! Come along, I need to tell you some great news! Come here! Come here! Oh, never mind, I'll come to you. No, you know, back a hundred years ago... Let everybody make room, because we have one more that needs a place to sit! Thank you, thank you. A hundred years ago, there were kids whose job it was to stand on the street and do what I just did. They would hold up a newspaper and they would yell out, Legal Moose Hut near Fairbanks leaves orphaned, distraught. Or they would say, Man steals car, leads law enforcement on a chase. Or they would say, Air Force officials share information. And people would come up and want to know what they were talking about. And then they would ask them for a dime or a quarter, whatever the amount was for the newspaper. And they'd pay for it and they'd give them a newspaper. Then they'd grab another newspaper off the stack and they'd yell, Hey, everybody, there's some great news here. I need you to come and get the news. That's what kids did a hundred years ago. They would stand in the street and yell about the news. Well, we're not going to talk about news that's in a newspaper, but I want to tell you about some news that's in the Bible, and it's called good news. Do you know a story about good news? Have you ever, do you remember a story in the Bible where it says, I'm bringing you good news? Do you remember that? No. Not bad things right now, okay? But you can after church. You come up to me and talk to me after church about it, okay? Let me tell you a story real quick just to remind you because I'm sure you remember this story very, very clearly. There is a story where an angel appears in the sky and the angel appears in the sky and the angel says to some shepherds, you do. What does the angel say to the shepherds? Exactly. And they say, don't be afraid because I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The angels were just like those newsboys. They went to somebody who didn't know about it and they told good news about the birth of the Messiah. Do you know there's another story in the Bible about a man who told good news? It's found in the book of Acts. And this one, not everyone knows, but it's a pretty cool story. There's a man who used to live in a place called um, Ethiopia, which is down in Africa. And he had come to Jerusalem, the city, the capital where the, 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 the nation of Israel, where their capital was. And he was riding home after this great festival that he had come to attend. And he was riding in his chariot. Do you know what a chariot is? Yeah. Have you ever heard of a chariot? It's kind of like a cart that's pulled by horses. And so it says in the Bible that this Ethiopian leader was in his chariot and he was reading the Bible. He was reading a story out of the Bible, out of the prophet Isaiah. And all of a sudden, a guy named Philip, who was a believer in Jesus, a follower of Jesus, 
the Holy Spirit told Philip to go and come alongside and walk next to the chariot. So Philip was walking on the road next to the chariot. And the chariot's being pulled by the horse. And the man, uh, the Ethiopian, is standing in the thing. And he's reading. And he's reading it out loud. And Philip says, hey, I hear you're reading out of the book of Isaiah. And he said, yeah. And, the, and Philip says, do you know what it means? He goes, how could I know what it means? Unless somebody explains it to me. And Philip goes, I can tell you what it means. And so it says in the Bible that, hold on, I'll, tell, I'll read it to you. Do you understand what you're reading? And the Ethiopian said, how can I unless somebody guides me? So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, the passage of scripture that he was reading was out of the book of Isaiah. And, at the, and the, the Ethiopian said to Philip, who is this? Who is the prophet talking about? Is he talking about himself or is he talking about something else, someone else? And listen to this. Then Philip begins speaking and he began talking about the scripture and he told the Ethiopian the good news about Jesus. See, it's the job of Christians to tell good news. It's the job of newspaper boys and newspaper people to tell news. But it's not necessarily good news. But Christians have good news, great news. And it's always about Jesus. Cool? So your job as a follower of Jesus is not to be a newspaper person but to be a person who proclaims good news. And you can literally do that as you walk down the street. Hey, I got some good news. You want to hear it? It takes a little bit of boldness, but children are more bold than adults. So if you learn to practice it now when you're young, it won't be so hard when you get to be older. Because literally, the only way other people will know about Jesus is if we tell them the good news about Jesus. So your job this week is to try and find one person then you can tell the good news to them about how Jesus can be their savior if they will just trust him. Let me pray with you guys. Father, bless these kids. Help them, Father, to come to understand what it means to truly be a good news teller and help them to have the courage to do it. In your name I pray, amen. Okay, you guys get to go with with your teacher, okay? And I'm gonna go sit up here and talk to these adults. Hey, yes, ma'am. Oh, no, after church, after church. Okay, thank you. I know, and I want to hear it, but I don't want to hear it now. Because unfortunately, you can open up a can of worms and it's not a good thing to do it here. All right, brothers and sisters, you have had a math equation sitting on the screen in front of you all morning long. And I know people don't like math and that's okay. And what does math have to do with church anyway? But does anybody understand what that's talking about? The Trinity plus us. That's a good guess. Not it. But it's close. One plus one plus one plus one equals one. Any ideas? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John all tell the story of Jesus. But they tell from their perspective. They tell a full story of Jesus. But we don't get the full story of Jesus unless we read all four Gospels. Oh, and by the way, did you know that the Gospel... The word gospel means good news. 
Literally, that's where the word gospel came from. So when, when we say we're reading the gospel of Matthew, we're reading the good news as told by Matthew. Or we're reading the good news as recorded by Luke. Or we're reading the good news that John chronicled. That's what the gospel of means. Now, <clears throat> there are four gospels in the, in the New Testament. As we said, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Did you know, and I didn't know this, well, actually, before I get into this, let me share you a little bit about why we're doing this. Um, about a month and a half ago, maybe, maybe a month ago, um, a friend of mine, actually, it was about three months ago, somebody asked me about some commentaries that I have. Um, they are uh, published by the Nazarene Publishing House, now known as The Foundry. And it's the new Wesleyan theological commentary, but it's called the New Beacon Bible Commentary. And they asked me if I had some. I said, yeah, I've, I've been collecting them through the years as they've been published, but I don't have all of them. And they asked me to send a list of what I had. So I did. And that was the end of it. I never heard anything after that. And then about a month ago, I got a package in the mail with a note. It said, I'm so sorry. I intended to put this in the mail a long time ago, and I just kept forgetting. But here, enjoy. And I opened up the package, and it was a commentary out of this New Beacon Bible commentary series on the Gospel of Matthew. And I was like, woohoo, another one of my books that I don't have to spend 30 or $35 myself for. Yay. And I went to put it on the shelf, and the Holy Spirit said, no, you need to read this. <laughs> But I, I don't read them unless I'm studying the books. I don't have to read through a commentary. No, you need to read this. So I set it to the side and I will read it someday. But every day, not every day, but every week, number, numerous times throughout the week for the last month, the Holy Spirit has been saying to me, this is what you need to be talking about. This is what you need to be studying. And so I have come to understand, oh, as, as slowly as it took me to get it, that this is what God wants us to be looking at over the coming months. So starting today through February 28th or March 1st, I don't remember sure exactly when the, what the date is exactly, um, we will be looking at the Gospel of Matthew. Now, I don't, we can't in that time look at every little thing of Matthew. So what I did was I took, there's 28 chapters. So there will be 28, actually 29 sermons, because today is an introduction, and then there's 28. So there'll be a total of 29 sermons over the course of the next six or so months on the Gospel of Matthew. So I, what I'm encouraging you to do is what I am doing. I want you to commit, and, and you don't have to raise your hand and say, Pastor, I will, but I want to encourage you to commit to reading the Gospel of Matthew every week between now and and the end of February. I will tell you that I sat yesterday afternoon and I was able to read all 28 chapters in less than two hours. So if you were to divide 28 by seven, that's four. If you were to read four chapters a day, you would get through the entire book of Matthew in one week. So if you will commit to reading four chapters out of the Gospel of Matthew every day between now and the end of February, you will have read through the Gospel of Matthew 28 times. 
And what that, it'd actually be more than that because there's going to be a few weeks in between where we're not going to have a Matthew thing and you don't need to know, know about that right now. But the schedule is it's more than 28 weeks between now and the end of February. But the bottom line is, if you'll do that, you will be amazed at how much you're going to learn about the story of Jesus from the perspective of Matthew. Let me share with you some of the things I've learned just in the last few days as I have been studying the gospel. I'm not going to talk to you about content as much as I'm going to talk to you about the book itself in an overview. First of all, I had never, I've been a Christian since 1975. I have never once heard this. Even though I went to the Bible college, I've got a bachelor's degree and an associate's degree and a master's degree, all studying God. I've never heard anyone say this. Did you know in the book of Ezekiel, chapter one, verse 10, it says this. As for the likeness of their faces, and this is talking about the four creatures that are underneath the the throne of God in the vision of Ezekiel. As for the likeness of their faces, each of these creatures had a human face. The four also each had a face of the lion. They also had the face of an ox and they also had the face of an eagle. In other words, this creature had four faces, a head a lion, an ox, and an eagle. And about a hundred or so years ago, no, not a hundred years ago, a number <laughs> a number of centuries ago, uh, back in the early part of the early days of the church, there was a, there was a, um, a, a theologian whose name was Jerome. And Jerome assigned one of those faces of these creatures from Ezekiel chapter 1 to each of the Gospels. So one of the Gospels is the face of the man. One of the Gospels is the face of the lion. One of the Gospels is the face of the ox. One of the Gospels is the face of the eagle. I will tell you in a moment what those are. But what do you think they might be? Which one would be the ox? Which one would be the lion? Which one would be the eagle? Which one would be the, 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 the man? Any ideas at all? Ox is what? A servant, okay. Let me share with you. The lion is a king, exactly. Okay, this is what this is what um, Jerome said. Okay, and it has been owned now by scholars forever and forever. And it's it's just it's it's not the Bible, but it's talking about what does the content of these gospels mean? Okay, um, Matthew is associated. With the face of the man. Because Matthew focuses on the humanity of Christ. Mark is identified with the face of the lion. Because Mark emphasizes Christ's royal dignity. Luke gets the ox. Because his gospel focuses on the sacrificial nature or character of Christ's death. And John is associated with the eagle because the gospel describes the incarnation of the Logos, which comes from above. So it's this thing that comes from above. And literally, I did not know this either. John is called the eagle of Patmos. 
which is an interesting thing. And it goes right back to this idea that Jerome had of, of calling uh, or of aligning the Gospel of John with the face of the eagle. So there are these four Gospels. They all have their own face, their own point of view, their own purpose. And as I said, one plus one plus one plus one equals one. So we get one full picture of the Gospel of Jesus Christ by looking at these four elements. And then if we look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and I mean, if we look at only three of them, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we find that they are a lot more similar to each other than John does. So then if you look at that, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, scholars have determined that these are known as the synoptic gospels. Synoptic simply means from one point of view. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke, if you read through all three gospels, are very very similar in the way that they're constructed. And the reason for that is it is believed by scholars that Mark, excuse me, that Matthew and Luke actually used the book of Mark as an outline when they were drafting their own gospels. In other words, Mark's was the earliest of all the gospels written. Mark's was written about 25 to 30 years after Jesus's ascension. Mark was then used, and it was in circulation by the church. People were reading it. And so um, so Matthew and Luke had copies of what Mark had written, and they used that as the basic outline for their gospel, and then they filled in from their perspective the rest of it. Now, in addition to that, scholars believe that Matthew and Luke used another source of writings of Jesus's sayings. In other words, his teachings, his sermons, that type of thing. This source, although there is no physical copy that they could point to and say, see, we told you there's this source. But they believe that there was a writing called what they call Q. The term Q is actually from a German word, quell, which means source. Duh. And it is the sayings of Jesus. So imagine Mark, ha- I mean, Matthew has these two documents in front of him, the outline of, Ma- of Mark's gospel, and then these collections of the sayings and teachings of Jesus. And he begins to marry them together along with his own personal recollection. While ha- and in, in addition to the things that he remembers and, and is prompted by the Holy Spirit to say. Now, one of the things I learned in doing this study, Matthew... If we didn't have Matthew, remember is it one plus one plus one plus one equals one? If we didn't have Matthew, we wouldn't have the Sermon on the Mount. It's no place else. Luke has something like it, but we don't have the Sermon on the Mount. Therefore, we don't have the Beatitudes if we don't have Matthew. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the peacemakers. We wouldn't have any of that if we didn't have Matthew. We wouldn't have the Lord's Prayer if we didn't have Matthew. Luke, again, has something similar. But the Lord's Prayer that most Christians quote comes directly out of Matthew. We wouldn't have the stories of the birth of Jesus related to Joseph. You know how the angel appeared to Joseph and said, don't be afraid to take her as your wife. The angel appeared to Joseph and said, the king is trying to kill the babies. Take that your wife and child to safety, flee to Egypt. Then the angel appeared to Joseph and said, it's safe for you to now go back to your homeland. And then the angel appeared to Joseph and told him to go up to the Galilean area, not back to Judea. And they settled in the area of Nazareth. 
And Matthew then says, if you read that section, which we will some other time, that fulfills the prophecy that says that Jesus was, that the Messiah was to be the Nazarene, called the Nazarene. So these things, all about the birth narratives from what the angels talked to Joseph about, we wouldn't have had any of that if we didn't have the Gospel of Matthew. So Matthew is key in a lot of ways to our understanding of Jesus' story, Jesus' ministry. So Matthew is not just this throwaway thing. It is indeed integral, important thing for you to know and understand. And, like I said, if you will commit to reading it once a week for the next 28 to 30 weeks, you will gain so much knowledge. I mean, literally, I've read it and read it and read it and read it and read it, but I don't think I could ever say that I've ever read it in one sitting until this week. And it took me less than two hours to do all 28 chapters. And I, I promise you, when I got to chapter 12 and 13 and 14, I was like, come on, how much longer is this going to be? But I was intentionally trying to do it in one sitting so that I could tell you how long it took me. So it took me about two hours. Well, it's, you don't have to commit a full two hours. Like I said, four chapters a day and you'll have it done in the week and then just start again. And just But doing it. You will immerse yourself in these stories. You will immerse yourself in these teachings. The Sermon on the Mount, the Birth and Narratives, the Beatitudes. These things will be rich for you. And you will have them hidden in your heart. So that the Holy Spirit of God can then pull them back out when needed. Alright. Now, what is the theme of, the, of, the, of the, the Gospel of Matthew? Again, we said it's the face of man. Talking about the humanity of Jesus. But what is the theme if there was a specific central theme, scholars believe that the theme of Matthew is that Jesus is the king of the Jews. Did you know, and I didn't know this until I studied this, that the gospel of Matthew is the only, math, the only gospel that uses the term kingdom of heaven? Other, math, other gospels talk about the kingdom. But kingdom of heaven is a Matthew phrase. The word kingdom itself is used 56 times in 28 chapters. That's literally on average twice a chapter. That's why they believe this idea of kingdom is the theme of the book. Because it is so full of this imagery of king, kingdom, kingdom of heaven. Matthew, uh, I mean, so, so Matthew is credited with teaching, with writing this, but the reality is we have no clue who wrote this. If you read all 28 chapters, you will not once see written here by the hand of Matthew. You, it's not there. There's no place in any of the Bible that specifically says Matthew wrote these words. So why do we say it's called the Gospel of Matthew? Because from the earliest time of the church, Matthew was given credit as the author. Now, scholars are not 100% sure when Matthew was written. I told you Mark was written about 25 to 30 years after Jesus' ascension. They believe that Matthew was written after that, because Mark is part of the structure, so Mark had to be in, op in, 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 in out in circulation before Matthew started writing. They believe that Matthew was written 50 to 60 years after Jesus' ascension, which places it closer to the 80s or 90s of the first century. Now, 
Matthew from the from the first century, late first century or early second century, Matthew has been the author. There's been no question in the church from that, and scholars don't debate it. So although we have no proof from the Bible itself, tradition tells us Matthew is the guy that wrote this. So who is Matthew? Well, if you go to the lists of the apostles, okay, there are four gospels. Only three of the Gospels list the Apostles. Those three are the Synoptic Gospels. Again, Matthew, Mark, Luke. If you look at that list of 12 Apostles, you see the name Matthew listed as one of the 12. If you look at the Gospel of Matthew's list of the 12 Apostles, turn to Matthew chapter 10, verse 3. And I'll read it to you, or read it with you. Matthew chapter 10, verse 3. This is Matthew's listing of the 12 apostles. Now, if you remember, Jesus went off to pray, and then he spends the night praying, and then he comes back and he, he names his 12 apostles. Well, the names, verse, the, 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 the name of the apostles in first, second and third verse of, in the fourth verse of chapter 10, it says, the names of the 12 apostles are these. Simon, who's called Peter, Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother, John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed them. So Matthew gives a little bit description of the various people who are the 12 apostles. And in his own description of of himself, he says, Matthew, the tax collector. Now, if you look at the King James version or the older versions, you're going to see the word publican. In old England, publican was an innkeeper. That's not what a publican means here. The modern translations will now say tax collector because that's what a publicanus was. Back in the time of Rome, there was a job called the publicanus. The publicanus was the guy who was from that nation, from that area, and hired by the nation of Rome, by the empire of Rome, to exact taxes from their own people. So the publicanus was not well liked by their own people because they set up shop in their own hometown and they took the taxes for the Roman Empire. But how did the publicanus get paid? The publicanus had the authority to charge more than the tax that was due so long as the amount taken did not cause a riot among the people. So the idea of a publicanus, it's, this is historical record. This isn't just Bible. The idea of a publicanus is the empire said, we're not going to be the bad guys. We're going to get somebody in the, uh, in the community to be the bad guy. And the way they get their money is the more that they can take, the more they can have in their own pocket. And we're not the bad guys. They're the ones stealing from you. We're just asking for what's your fair share for the protection and the road system and all the stuff that we're providing for you. If you're paying more than you're supposed to, then you need to take that up with your publicanus. Okay? Now, we never hear any of that when we think about Matthew, the wonderful gospel writer. But Matthew and Zacchaeus were two of a, of a kind. They were two peas in a pod. Remember Zacchaeus, the wee little man who's got up in the sycamore tree so he could see Jesus? 
And he, he saw Jesus and Jesus says, come down, I'm going to your house today for a party. And Zacchaeus gets saved. And Zacchaeus stands up and says, I'm going to give back all the money I ever defrauded, even up to four times. Remember all of that story? Matthew, same guy. Not the same man. Same, per, same type of job. Publicanus. So Matthew is in Capernaum, which is the new headquarters of Jesus after Jesus leaves Nazareth. Jesus becomes a carpenter slash craftsman. And he goes to Capernaum because that's one of the larger cities of the area. And actually, there's a city just outside of Capernaum if we want to go into the, geolog- the, the, the archaeological record. And that's where he actually worked. But he was settled in Capernaum. And Matthew was the tax collector, the publicanist for Capernaum. So literally, Jesus had to go and pay taxes on behalf of his mother and himself to the publicanist Matthew. Jesus knew Matthew for a long time before he ever called him out of his booth. He knew who this guy was and he knew what he was and he knew how he treated his community. And he knew that the publicanus was not well liked. Not just Matthew, but the publicanus period. Did you know that the publicanus class, this group of people who extorted from their own, they were known as leeches? They were the ones that would gorge themselves on their own people, off of their own people. They were not allowed in the synagogue. They were not allowed to be part of decent society. Everyone hissed as they walked by. However, Everyone had to go to their office and pay their due because if they didn't, the Roman soldiers would come. So this is not a good thing to be a publicanus from society's perspective. The name publicanus or tax gatherer is actually associated in the Bible with the word sinner. The, the religious perspective of a publicanist or a tax collector was they were a sinner. They were somebody who was, in, who was against God. They were somebody who did not follow the teachings of God. They didn't love their neighbor as themselves. They loved themselves. Now, although we don't know that Matthew was the author, we know that Matthew was an apostle. And we know from Matthew's own description of himself that he was a publicanus. He was a tax collector. But there's a challenge in the name of the, of the author that we need to recognize. Because as you're reading the synoptic gospels, the three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you're going to see that Luke and Mark, Mark and Luke, have a different name for this publicanus. Than Matthew does. But we know that it's the same guy because there are only 12 apostles, right? So when Mark and Luke list the 12 apostles, they use a different name. But they still call him the tax gatherer. So, what this is, the, the, the other name, the one that Mark and Luke use, is Levi. So Matthew was originally called Levi. And one of the things that I found interesting, I read um, the, this man who was the son of Alphaeus, this guy named Levi. He, the term Levi, the name Levi means joined. And one of the commentators wrote this. It was just really fine, interesting to me. 
In his despised occupation, this Levi, this man named for the tribe of priests to God, joined himself to the world's crooked, extortionate ways and mercenary aims. He was joined by his vocation to a hated foreign power under whose yoke Orthodox Jews chafed. So joined had literally broken himself, his reputation, his association with family, his association with his church community, everything to take on because of his own greed and his own self-care. Now, Matthew, on the other hand, the term Matthew means gift of God. Matthew's new name magnifies, and this is still that same commentator, Matthew's new name magnifies the transforming power of Christ and indicates that Matthew, like the one who called him, is a gift to Israel and to the world. Now, we don't know if Matthew or Levi was given the name Matthew by Jesus, like, you know, how... Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, you will no longer be known as Simon today. You from this day forward, you're going to be called Peter. We don't know if Levi got the name of Matthew from Jesus or if Levi just took on the name Matthew himself. But he changed his identity after coming into contact with Christ. He changed his association. It literally says he left everything, walked away from his entire livelihood to follow Jesus. If you look in Matthew and Luke chapter 5, turn with me to that to that passage. Luke chapter 5 verses 27 I think it is and following. Luke chapter 5, uh, chapter 5 27 and following. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi. Okay, see this is where the two, the two different gospels are, are blending. So we know Matthew the tax collector, Levi the tax collector. This is, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. Well, he knew where he was because it was his hometown. And he was, he had to pay taxes at Levi's booth all the time. And so he said to this guy, follow me. Verse 28. And leaving everything, Levi rose and followed Jesus. Verse 29. And Levi made Jesus a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at this, this at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? See the connection between tax collectors and sinners. Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but to sinners to repentance. Now, this feast that was following the calling. It's very important to understand Matthew's change of heart and mind. And also the beginnings of his evangelistic calling. Even before he understands or recognizes it. The, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read to you because I can't really say it as well as the, as the person I read from. To celebrate his surrender to Christ. Matthew entertained Christ and others to a feast in his own house. This feast was a token of gratitude for his emancipation from a sordid occupation, and it revealed a missionary spirit in Matthew. Such an at-home 
served a threefold purpose. Number one, it was a jubilee feast. It commemorated his translation into a new life. Jubilee in Jewish vernacular is a year of release. It's a year of renewal. It's a year when everything that was bad can go back to the original. And so this jubilee feast idea is everything's new for me. I'm a completely different human being. I've changed myself. I'm no longer Levi. I am Matthew. I am no longer joined to the corrupt world. I am now a gift from God. It was also a farewell dinner. He was declaring his determination henceforth to follow and serve his new king. No longer would he be joined to Caesar. He was now joined to God. It was his public confession and surrender to his call to Christ or to his call of Christ. In other words, he didn't just quietly leave his booth and walk away. He made this huge public thing of it. He not only came into faith and came into relationship with Jesus and had a complete transformation of his character and broke his relationship with his former world. He then declared it publicly by this, this farewell dinner to everything that he had been and everything he had known. Very similar to what happened with Zacchaeus. And then finally, this is a word I've never heard before. So again, I'm quoting the, the scholar. This was, <coughs> excuse me, this was what was called a conversazione. And I looked it up to see if it was a real word or something they made up. And it's a real word. It's a real thing. Um, what this is, this is a gathering to have an open conversation, to have a discussion about a topic. That's what a conversazione is. And this, this author said it was a conversazione to introduce to Levi's old associates and friends to his newfound savior, that they too might have an opportunity of hearing his wonderful words of life. Matthew sought to make a dinner party an evangelistic service. He knew that many of his associates, many of his friends, many of his community would come to his house to meet Christ. But they would never go to the synagogue. He knew that doubtless many publicans and sinners that day learned that Christ did not despise them. Isn't that a powerful story? A powerful thought? One other thing I had never heard, and this is what I actually, I named my sermon this. The Gospel of Matthew is known as the Hebrew porch of the New Testament. Think of that. Old scholarly stuff, back long, 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 long time ago, 300s, 400s, used to list the Gospels as Mark, Matthew, Luke, John. But if you look in any Bible we have today, Matthew is always the first Gospel in the book of the New Testament, in the section of the New Testament. And Hebrew and the scholars have, have nicknamed it the Hebrew porch of the New Testament. Why? Number one, only you only have to read the first two chapters of Matthew. And again, I'm reading somebody else's words, so that's right. I'm having to read from my notes. You only have to read from the first two chapters of Matthew to see why those responsible for the arrangement of the books placed Matthew at the beginning. No less than five times in these first two chapters do we encounter encounter the formula quotation 
All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. Five times in two chapters. It's an important message he's trying to get across to his audience. This expresses that Jesus and the events surrounding his birth, which is the first couple of chapters of Matthew, fulfill Old Testament prophecy. Jesus is shown as the Jewish Messiah who comes in fulfillment of the Jewish scriptures. Matthew is focused on reaching Jews for Christ. It is the perfect bridge between the Old Testament and the stories of the New Testament. It is called the front porch of the New Testament and it is the Hebrew porch of the New Testament because it literally welcomes the Jews into the story, the good news of Jesus. The Jews who want to come in to that story walk onto the porch before they can enter the house and that porch is the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew, I did not know this either. I've always been taught that the Bible was written in in Greek. I've always been taught the New Testament. I've always heard that. But scholars know, because they have, his, they have the, the record, the Gospel of Matthew was originally written in Hebrew. It was then translated into Greek. And that's one of the other reasons why they believe that, God, that, Matthew, that Matthew's whole intent was trying to reach his own people with the story of Jesus. The Gospel of Matthew is the most Jewish of the four Gospels. Let me read to you five statements. Six statements, seven statements, something like that. If you look at the very first chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, look at the very, somebody open up the Gospel of Matthew, look at the very first verse. What does it say? Anything beyond that? Okay. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. If you go to the, 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 the genealogy in Luke, which you don't have to turn there, the genealogy of Luke goes all the way back to Adam. Because Luke had a different audience that he was trying to reach. Matthew, trying to reach the Jews, was only concerned with showing Jesus' affiliation with the Jewish people By taking it back genealogically to Abraham. But there's a key in it. It says he was also a descendant of David. A direct descendant of David. He was a legitimate heir to the throne of David, so to speak. And so calling him in his gospel the king of the Jews... And the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven, this idea of Jesus, the man who was a Jew, who directly descended not only from Abraham, but from David. Now you can believe he is your Messiah, Jewish people. Now you can understand how he fulfills all Old Testament prophecy, Jewish people. Hear my words, Jewish people. Welcome to the story, to the good news. If you look at the book of Matthew and read through it, you will find that he 
identifies in his narrative Jewish customs and Jewish terms, but he doesn't explain them to the reader. He just says them. For example, if I were speaking to a group from Alaska and I said, I'm going outside next week, what would I be telling you? I'm going to the lower 48. If I said that down in, uh, said it to a friend of mine who lives in Texas and I said, I'll be coming outside next week, I'll see you then. And they're like, what are you talking about? You're going to go outside next week and we're going to see each other? What's that? They have no clue. Same thing. Matthew uses terms and phrases and customs in his writing, but he doesn't explain their meaning because the audience already understands what he's talking about. The other thing, he gives more reference than any other God. And this is, this is, uh, this is, this was interesting. He gives more reference to the law of Moses than all of the other gospel writers combined. He gives more fulfillments of testimony. I mean, of, of Old Testament prophecy than all of the other gospels. Matthew emphasizes righteousness more than all the gospel writers put together. And righteousness is the central idea of the Jewish religion. Jesus is presented to the Jews not only as the Messiah, but also as the king, which we already said. He is the beginning of, at the beginning of genealogy, we already looked at, the throne of David. The wise men, only mentioned in Matthew, the wise men asked for, where will we go to find the king of the Jews? When Matthew rose from his booth and left to follow Christ, the only things Matthew took out of his old life were his pen and his ink. And it is very good for us that he did. Now, that's the overview. That's the intro to the book. What's the so what for us? Because I don't want to waste an hour just talking about stuff that's really interesting, but what does it mean for me today? Well, this is it. Number one, as I already said, the gospel is good news. As Christians, you know the good news. And if you read the end of the Matthew, the end of the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 20, verses 16, Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20, which you will read this week because you're committing to reading through the whole book of Matthew this week, you will read that we Christians have a charge to tell the good news of Jesus and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. When deciding how to best present this good news, you need first to identify who your audience is, just like Matthew did. Matthew knew who he was trying to reach. Matthew then fashioned his entire message for them. He chose specific things, all under the guidance and leadership of the Holy Spirit, but he chose specific things and put them in a certain fashion because he had a certain person he was trying to tell the truth to. In the same way, we need to identify our audience. We then need to craft our message in such a way that it speaks to their worldview, their mindset, their culture. Now, do you understand what I'm saying? It's not simply a matter of saying, hey, everybody, I got some great news for you. If you'll just come over here and listen to me. It's being intentional. You who carry the good news to identify who around you needs that good news, but finding a way to speak that good news to them so that they can get it.
Finally, you have a unique voice. God has positioned you in the lives of your community because you have a, you alone have a connection with those in your community which will give you permission to bear the good news before them. I can't go to some of the people you can go to. They won't hear it from me. I don't know their language. I don't know their mindset. I don't know their worldview. I don't know their culture. I don't know their customs. You do. And you have the responsibility of carrying it, speaking it well, speaking it in a way they can understand, and making disciples. That's your job. That's what Christ tells us to do. So my words to you now, go out there and speak loudly and long and make disciples. In Jesus' name, let's pray. Father God, I'm excited about where you're going to take us over the next number of months. And I am looking forward to the, to the journey as well. Um, I pray that you would encourage each one of us, Father, to, uh, to take what we've heard today and to share it with somebody. And I truly pray, Father, that you would not let any one of these people rest until they commit to read through the Gospel of Matthew every week for six months. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.